Salwete de Scipoli, and welcome to another lesson of Latin in Layman's, where we're going to be going into a pretty important topic, um, and that is the present subjunctive, which is in correlation with Wheelock's chapter 28. So I actually, since it's such a long, in-depth process that I have to do here with the subjunctive, because we're uh, introducing an entirely new mood, which is something that I will get into uh, in a bit, as in what mood really uh, pertains to. Uh, so I'm going to segment it into two parts here. So this is going to be part one of the present subjunctive here. So all in all, remember, I'm going to give you some points to to kind of like look back at and see if uh, they make further sense once we get through this entire lesson. So there, like I said, three. The first, the subjunctive is the mood of uncertainty, okay? Though in practice, it often merely signals subordination. Introduces a lot of clauses, all that good stuff. Subordinate clauses, subordinate constructions, um, all that grammatical terminology. Um, whereas I'm just going to contrast the indicative, which is what we've been learning thus far uh, in terms of verbs and how they're translated, is the factual mood. So indica indicative equals factual mood, um, subjunctive equals uncertain mood. So the second um, point that I want to note is a little what I refer to as a mnemonic here um, for remembering the, um, well, what I will go into a little bit deeper. So just remember this little quote. She reads a diary. She reads a diary. And then number three, purposes, or purpose clauses, rather, are introduced by the words ut or ne. Ut in the positive, ne to negate it. The subjunctive mood is the last of the moods left in Latin to cover. It's distinct from, well, uh, the mood of fact, right? Which is the indicative, as I went over earlier. How about the mood of the command? That's the imperative. Um, and all three of those moods are all distinct from infinitives and participles, that of which we've been learning thus far as well. So in other words, a verb can be indicative or imperative or an infinitive or a participle or now subjunctive, but it can't be two of any of those things, which is kind of nice. Um, doesn't mix or it doesn't have to overcomplicate things like English might. The way I look at the subjunctive is just seeing it as the opposite of the indicative. Where the indicative represents fact, the subjunctive reflects uncertainty. There are a subgenre of words associated with uncertainty, but we'll get into that later. Another way to look at the subjunctive is used when speakers feel somehow uncertain about the supporting uh, about supporting the truth of the statement they're making. This can include hopes, wishes, even impossibilities. Another important use of the subjunctive in Latin is to simplify the action of the verb. That is not speak about a particular actual circumstance, but just a general rule. But those are only two of the most common uses of the subjunctive. 
if you've studied any of the Romance languages, French, Italian, Spanish, uh, the language, uh, the languages into which Latin evolved, modern Latin, so to speak, um, you've probably already encountered subjunctive forms. Um, there, among other uses, uh, they serve to indicate that the verb is in a subordinate clause of some sort, of which I kind of noted earlier. In other words, though, it's limited and predictable, but it's not the main verb of the sentence. So while indicating subordination was not the only original purpose of the subjunctive, it couldn't have been. There wasn't a cultured clause system in the Proto-Indo-European. Already by pre-classical Latin, the subjunctive was uh, beginning to take on that role of the subjunctive to show that the verb of the sentence was not the main verb, but rather governed by some sort of clause or other statement. Thus, in Latin, almost as far back as we can see, the subjunctive doesn't necessarily always signal uncertainty. Thusly, and ultimately, the subjunctive was evolving during Roman times. So the outcome is that by classical Latin, um, which is, I believe, yeah, um, don't quote me on it, but I believe it's 1st century BCE. So... By that time, half, if not more, of subjunctives are found in clauses, many of which don't contain any dramatically uncertain sense. Um, clauses that begin with if, when, or whenever, so that, such that, the type who, although, along with quite a number of others that we will definitely get into because we still have... 12 chapters in Latin, so we're going to be learning a lot of clauses. So this is when Latin starts to get a little bit more tough, but also much more interesting because then we're able to translate um, prose, poetry, and uh, we don't have to really focus on translating everything so literally now. We can kind of um, understand, translate, and then fit it contextually into whatever is being, you know, said, i.e. what we learned from the indirect statement in the past, where we're not really, you know, we're indirectly stating something that uh, that was directly said or something like that. So anyways, moving on. So the subjunctive is sometimes found in main sentences, and when it is, there, there it does often retain this original sense of uncertainty. So the subjunctive does, in fact, have uh, a couple independent uses, too. The jussive, as um, I'm definitely going to go over in just one second, but these independent uses make up just a minority of the subjunctive verbs found in Latin. So <clears throat> the independent use of subjunctive is, you know, sometimes found in the main sentence, but uh, rarely, you know, usually it's being thrown into some sort of subordinating clause or construction. So the upshot is that there's no single English word which you can use to translate the Latin subjunctive. Uh, nothing even close. So the English verb system simply offers nothing directly comparable to Latin here. 
And I'm sure if you guys have already studied many of these romance languages, while you'll have learned that uh, may, might, let, would, should, could, were, and a few other English modals could be used to represent the Latin subjunctive, more often than not, uh, where Latin uses the subjunctive, nothing at all is attached to the English verb, if that makes sense. If not, it will soon. The reality is that much of the time, what you'll be doing in Latin is by first identifying the verb in the sentence, shanch, shanch. I am Sean Connery again, making an appearance and identify, identifying the verbs in a sentence. Uh, there is a sub... I'm done. Okay, backtrack time. Sorry for that awful impersonation. So first, by identifying the verb in a sentence um, that it is subjunctive. So that's the first thing that we're going to do. Figure out the type of clause that it's in. A clause you've learned uh, takes the subjunctive, right? And translate it the way English expresses that type of clause. And now you're going to learn all of these clauses that you've been saying Ever since you learned how to speak, but you never knew what it really was that you were saying. You don't understand what you're saying, grammatically speaking, until you freaking take Latin. So take Latin. <sighs> and good on you for listening, if you are. Uh, okay, so <clears throat> getting back into uh, translating that type of those... Uh, types of clauses. Therefore, you won't translate the subjunctive as such because you simply can't in English. In fact, English doesn't have a fully operative subjunctive. It did once, but our subjunctive today is only the trickle of an all but dead form. The ancient Romans lived and breathed the subjunctive, so we need to be able to show our grammatical understanding of each individual construction presented in its Latin context. Here's a method. If a Latin verb is subjunctive and in a certain type of clause, translate it using the English equivalent for expressing that construction. Often I can tell you the you often I can tell you know the verb is subjunctive when the way you translate the clause, right? This is what I tell students. But if I have any uncertainty in that regard, I can ask you and this is what I'll do a lot in class when I do teach is what mood and why, which I will often, um, I won't do in this kind of setting, but uh, I'll exercise examples with y'all to suffice. So when you're translating verbs that we are artificially isolating, just for now speaking, um, I want you to just label a sentence subjunctive or indicative or think of it. Jot it down in your head. Okay, this verb is subjunctive. This verb is indicative. Some Latin teachers um, have their students include may or might, like um, I mentioned before, when they're translating Latin subjunctive verbs. If you've ever taken Latin before, maybe that has happened. But I don't like that since the vast majority of the time you're not going to include those words in your English translation of a Latin subjunctive. My beloved professor, Dr. Damon, helped me see subjunctives as such, actually, because I had always seen them as may or might, but you realize that that can slowly um, dissolve 
after a while. So why learn a habit you're just going to have to unlearn later? That's just dumb. So you know what? Just know that the verb is subjunctive and then translate it according to the type of clause it's in. So if you're translating, let's say, scribant, an example of a Latin subjunctive word form, verb form, or word form, it's the subjunctive for they write. If you are writing, I urge you to put um, an S after your translation or an S after the verb, uh, indicating that it's subjunctive and so that you can remember if you ever forget, right? Because subjunctive mood is learning an entirely different, you know, uh, personal ending system. So for instance, they write, and then I would just, you know, indicate that that is subjunctive just to delineate between it and its indicative counterpart. Remember this too, there are no subjunctive infinitives or participles. So that's kind of cool. So subjunctives are always finite verbs. And just like indicatives, they'll be using personal endings you began learning on day one. O-S-T, mustis und, you know, bo bis bit bimus bitis bunt. That is, the subjunctive employs the same personal endings used in the indicative. That's awesome. Nothing new to learn here. If you haven't thought about it yet, None of the other ver verb forms like infinitives or participles use personal endings. So, <clears throat> when you see a personal ending, i.e. I, you, he, she, it, we, and so on, the verbs either indicative or subjunctive, fact or fiction, or in a clause. That also means it must be the main verb of the sentence or the main verb of a clause. So, we're going to come back. I'm just going to do a little brief break and hydrate before I dehydrate because it's dry out here in New Mexico. And we're going to go over how to form and what really mean, what I meant by the second point at the beginning of our lesson, She Reads a Diary. So stay tuned. Okay, and we are back. Thanks for sticking with me. And I know that those are shameless plugs and stupid little ads, but uh, it's whatever, I guess. Thanks for the support. So instead, we're going to jump right into the verb form. So rather than me showing you how to form the subjunctive, let's try to make um, a game out of this, really. So how did the Romans indicate anything notable like tense or person in a present tense system verb. Uh, they used markers inserted into a verb creating four parts, a base, a thematic vowel, a tense sign, and a personal ending. The subjunctive must fit inside one of these parameters in one way somehow, but which one? <coughs> Excuse me. Which one is the most natural home for showing that a verb is subjunctive? I'll skip over all the four parts and just cut to the chase here. It's the th thematic vowel that changes to indicative. I'm sorry. <laughs> it changes to indicate the subject. So the thematic vowel of a verb is what changes. Here's a great and easy way to remember how the Romans did it. So this is when I employ she reads a diary. Each of the vowels in the English sentence 
is the same as the subjunctive vowel used in each of the Latin conjugations. I always like writing this out and showing the correlations between the indicative and the subjunctive here, but we don't have that. We just have my voice. So she. So we have four words, right? We have she. We're focusing on she for the first word. Um, e for first conjugation. And then we go to reads. That vowel cluster EA is for the second conjugation. A, which is just A for the third conjugation. And diary, which is IA, the vowel uh, cluster, uh, for third IO and fourth. So that may not make a lot of sense right now. Let's go over it a little bit more. So for instance, change the thematic vowel of the first conjugation present tense verb form A to an E, right? So <clears throat> and, I, I won't jump, jump ahead. And you've learned, and there, by doing that, you've turned the verb from present indicative to present subjunctive. So for example, from amat to amet. See what I just did there? See what happened? We'll go over it more in a second. If it's second conjugation, you change it from an E to an EA, right? And in the third, I or a U to an A. And in the third, IO or fourth, turn the th normal thematic vowel I into IA. I'll now go over those forms with corresponding verbs to their conjugation. So she is going to be amem, ames, amet, amemus, ametis, ament. So you see how that's different? It's spelled A-M-E-M -E -M instead of it's not amam or amo, it's amem. And it's not amas, it's amaze. And it's not amat, it's amet. See how the vowel our thematic vowel changes from an A in the indicative to an E in the subjunctive, which means that that's it. Next, we go into reads. Our, our, we have the E-A. So, habeam, habeas, and habeat. Habeamus, habeatis, and habeant. For A, we have agam, agaz, agat, agamus, agatis, agant. And for diary, I-A, we have skiam, skiaz, skiat, skiamus, skiatis, skiant. And fugiam, fugias, fugiat, fugiamus, fugiatis, fugiant in the third I-O. So notice anything unusual or notable. Look at the first person, singular, subjunctive, and third, and third I-O and fourth. It's exactly the same as the future exclamation mark, exclamation mark, ma. In other words, A-M here can either mean I, may, might, whatever, subjunctive, or I will do something in the future. Not so the other firm, not so the other forms where the future will have an E, a.k.a. a gaze, which will mean you will drive, or the subjunctive a, as in a gas, you drive subjunctive. What does that say about Latin? It means that the Romans had no problem telling future from subjunctive, at least not in the first person singular, or they would have created separate forms 
we create and structure language in a very pragmatic ways, no? At least the Romans did. The Romans did, maybe we don't, as in uh, Anglo-Saxon and all of our English and whatnot. Anyways, how about this? Want to make the subjunctive forms passive? Um, well, I guess I'm sorry, but I'm also not sorry because we can also do that. But the possible caveat about this introduction is that the subjunctive has nothing to do with voice and therefore there's nothing new to learn here except to note that just like in the active, AR in the third conjugation can be subjunctive or future. So what's going on? <laughs> we have some more linguistics and etymology and lingual talk here. So Proto-Indo-European the matriarchal tongue of Latin and many other languages that I may have glossed over from time to time when doing these etymological tangents indicate this subjunctive mood by, mood by lengthening the vowel or changing it so it was more colorful, as you might have noticed. So from amaz to amaze. In my opinion, it kind of sounds Egyptian or something like that. Big, saturated-sounding A's and E's seem to have been the Indo-European's preference, and Latin, as an Indo-European product, carried on this tradition wholly. Along with this came the sensibility that the, mm, the subjunctive shows uncertainty, the equivalent of adding might, could, let, may. So, as you may have noticed my fairly prolific usage of those modals in my special lesson for today. <laughs> to an English verb and will to if speakers felt that what they were saying might somehow possibly not actually but only hopefully could happen in the future. Gotta love that. Love convoluted speech. So Proto-Indo-European definitely had a way of signaling that the speaker felt dubious about what, he was, uh, what was being said. Um, the subjunctive, it meant this might happen, but wouldn't count on it. But also what Proto-Indo-European didn't have was a genuine future. So a way of saying this will happen. I'm sorry, I just said didn't, did have it. So that's a very positive and healthy outlook on life, no doubt. On the other hand, we see Indo-Europeans didn't feel that way ever, really. To judge from their grammar, they were just all around depressed. Maybe that's why they migrated, I don't know. They needed a change of scenery and mental clarity, travel, and uh, all that can give you a little bit of clarity. So at the end of the day, though, the result was that none of the Indo-European daughter languages inherited this concept of a true future. So this is my roundabout way of just, you know, talking about why the subjunctive present and the, the, the future indicative are so similar. <clears throat> so... When the time came for feeling good about what lies ahead, apparently conquering the world improves uh, a person's mood. Ha, get my pun there. 
they all had to make up some way of speaking with certainty, certainty about the future. So our uh, head honcho Indo-European hadn't left them any way to pass on this tra- tradition. So um, the true future was just disregarded by all, including the Romans, and forgotten in time, alas. So that's going to be concluding my first segment, part one of the subjunctive, whereas part two will be a little bit shorter, and I am just going to go over the adjustive. Now that we've gone over how to form, we're going to go over a couple uh, clauses in the subjunctive. So thank you again for sticking with me. Appreciate you all. Tempus est discellere. And before you forget, go leave your boy five-star review. Would very much appreciate it. Thank you very much.